This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. We're discussing Blue in Chicago by Betty Howland. The story begins with a narrator recalling a murder near her apartment. Then we're on the move, en route to a family wedding. We're on a bus observing all the other passengers. We enter the lobby of a grandmother's apartment building, an uncle's home. We go to the wedding and the reception. We go everywhere with Betty Howland's protagonist, whose details in this story mirror many of the things we know about the author's real life, including that she was a divorced mother of two children, that she was keenly observant, that she loved to read, or at least as we learn in this story, she sometimes carried books around, but was too busy observing her surroundings to focus on reading. What do these things all have to do with each other? The structure of the story actually makes perfect sense when you look at the very first thing you know about this story, the title, Blue in Chicago. The story holds all of Chicago, high-rises, reception spaces, lobbies, streets, small apartments, family homes, and bus rides. These are the loneliest places of all, even when they're full of people. And what does Blue have to do with anything? In his memoir in essays, Still No Word From You, Peter Orner writes about Betty Howland's memoir, W3. In that work, Howland shares that she took a bottle of pills and ends up being placed in a locked psychiatric ward of a Southside hospital after a short stay in an emergency room. The memoir is much more about the people in the ward than about herself, writes Orner, Howland nearly completely disappears into the stories of the people she now lives among. This is how she endures it. She becomes, first and foremost, a witness. In Blue in Chicago, it feels as though the narrator takes the same approach and resists succumbing to this simmering low feeling about her own life. She tries anyway. She's removed from the murder she mentions, but then tells us how connected she feels to it. It happened in her neighborhood, and she, like the victim, is a graduate student. She must rely on the goodwill of family to get her to the wedding, and although in the process she must also bear the verbal jabs from these folks about her appearance and her station in life, we also learn a lot about them. We learn about the chronic sorrows of each person she encounters, We ride the bus with her, we go to the wedding, we enter Uncle Rudy's house, and even pour over the family photo album. Gradually, with her, we lose our resolve to be steady and strong as her uncle gives her the most unlikely of parting gifts as she leaves his home. What does he give her? What does Betty Howland offer to us? Listen, Peter Orner and I discuss Betty Howland's Blue in Chicago. It's so rooted in Chicago that I know anybody who loves a place would appreciate it, period. But there there are some details in here that are just so, um, just bring me back home in a way that um, almost nothing else I know of. I, I think it's because it's, uh, you know, it's 1980s Chicago. You just don't read, you know, talk about you know, Bella or Algren or some of the great Chicagoans. Um, you know, this is a, this is a particular Chicago that, um, is rarely, I've rarely seen captured in such a way. It's just, uh, just a gorgeous story. And what do you think it is? What are those nuances or what are those particulars that 
make you say that about the story? I mean, there's there's so many. Um, even even a tiny detail like the Osco, which is a drugstore, which is sort of I think I think defunct, maybe still exists. Jewel Osco. It's a it was a drug company, a big drug chain in Chicago, and you know you'd go to the Osco. But that's, it's been a long time since there was a freestanding Osco, you know, it just, it just, and you know, that just, that brings me back to like, you know, 1978, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, 1980, 1982. Um, and there's a, you know, there's so many examples, the biggest one, or one of the biggest ones that comes to my mind is the fact that they're, they're driving North to the suburbs where I come from, um, to go to a wedding. And they're arguing in the car about whether or not to take Sheridan Road's Sheridan Road or Eden's Expressway. That is a argument that I have with my mother um, every time I'm in Chicago is whether or not to take the highway or to take Sheridan. And I always want to take Sheridan because it's slower and you get to look at stuff. And my mother, you know, is like, she, you got to take the highway. Why'd they build the highway? If we, if we wouldn't take the highway, we got to take the highway. It's faster, 15 minutes faster, 20 minutes faster. It doesn't matter. Or this happens a lot of times. It's slower because it's wall to wall traffic on the Ken, Kennedy and the Eats. So <laughs> I better creep along with, with red lights on shared road and look at everything, including the lake, our beautiful lake, than sit in wall to wall traffic. But Part of the having a highway is you got to sit in wall-to-wall traffic too. You almost have to honor the fact that they built the highway. But so, yeah, you know, they are going to a wedding. And that's another thing about this story is it's a wedding story. It's one of these stories where there's this ensemble of characters and we learn so much about them because of the way they're drawn in this particular situation. But the thing is that even if, even though they're going to a wedding, they're just who they are. The qualities are so like amplified here. Um, and you got a lot of people in the car, right? You got a grandmother. Yeah. You got you got the kid, the narrator's mother. You have the narrator's grandmother. The narrator's uncle, and you have the narrator's aunt. Right? It's a, mm-hmm. a lot of people. A lot of people, and there's so there's so much going on with um, how the narrator perceives them and her her history with them i just i love that kind of story and and i should say i i didn't want to say this and then you know of course when you say you tell yourself in your mind you're not going to say something then (laughs) but uh my understanding i don't have the book in front of me but i have held the original copy of blue in chicago which was a, a freestanding book when it first came out um and I believe that the book was published as a, as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, it now has been republished in collected stories or selected stories of Betty Howland as fiction, which I think makes a lot of sense, but I think, um, cause it's definitely a story. It's a short story, whether it's true or not. Um, I don't think that matters, but it is, it, it is interesting to me that, that there was sort of a, you know, a blurriness of genre, even, even when she published the book originally, that was, um, uh, part of it. Well, so yeah, in the book, um, the author Honor Moore writes about, writes the afterword and writes about the way, um, interviewers try to label Howland's work. Is it nonfiction? Is it fiction? And the question of form. 
And there's this quote from Howland, what form did I use? Well, you don't use form. That's the whole trouble. You find form. When people yeah. ask, is this nonfiction or fiction? They mean, is it fact or fiction? Is it true or not? And then um, more in the afterward says, for Betty, this was a frivolous question. But when people worry about whether something is fiction or nonfiction, they are worrying about how much invention there is. They should be worrying about how much imagination there is, said Howland. Imagination is the only way of experiencing life. So I'm glad you brought that up, even though you said you weren't going to bring it up. Well, I mean, it's beautifully said. And, it, you know, it, 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 it's not without complication, right? I mean, you apply it to this story, you know, and, and but I think the question isn't, it shouldn't be, you know, what's made up and what isn't, but what, you know, how much, and she's, I, can we cut that? It's, she said it better than I ever could, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, it's still a, a juicy question nonetheless, you know, um, but, but is not, shouldn't, shouldn't be the issue when it comes to how. The story opens with the narrator's details about a murder of a, of a graduate student. And she takes real interest in it because she's a student lives in Hyde Park where the murder occurred. And this remains important to us, the readers this idea of what goes on in, in Chicago and in this particular space that she inhabits as opposed to where all of her relatives seem to live. And she brings up this, this situation, the, mm, the ride on the bus, right? Her different, her very different sort of life in Chicago as opposed to what her family, what her family experiences. Um, I do find that so interesting. There's so many layers in this story. It's the wedding. I mean, it's the murder. It's the wedding. It's the the ride on the bus. It's back to the wedding. It's back to um, her own story about being a mother of two children and uh, being uh, estranged from her husband. And there's just so much going on and it's it's amazing to me how it all fits and then where we end up I don't want to jump too far ahead already but and then where we end up and it just all makes perfect sense you don't even question the transitions you just sort of move along it it, it is remarkable in that sense of how much how much is here it's not a tiny story you know it's a it's a what a 25 35 page story it goes back to the shared road thing. Geography is really important in this story. And you don't have to be from Chicago to, to, to realize that, A, we're dealing with a very large city and we're dealing with a lot of distance. And Hyde Park is far from uptown. And so it literally it takes her um, over an hour on the bus to get to her grandmother's house where um, Uncle Rudy then picks them up to drive them to the, to the Northern suburbs. And that, you know, imagine, you know, going for an hour from one part of the city to the other, and it, it, it gives you a sense of sort of the breadth of the city. And also it gives you a sense of, I think the breadth of sort of, of, of this particular story in the sense that she's covering Hyde Park, she's covering the North side and she's covering the far North suburbs. In the North Shore, they drive through on the way home on Shared Road because they take Shared Road on the way home. So you know, it 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 just gives you a sense of the of the breath. And 
you know, that's what I particularly love about Highland, Howland is she covers the city um, in a way that I, I think few writers sort of have. I mean, Bellow comes to mind. Bellow, uh, they were, they, uh, Bellow and Howland knew each other. Uh, Bellow was, sort of, as I could tell, was pretty supportive of her career at one point. You know, in the fact, in the sense that Bellow knew the South Side and he knew the North Side. But I, I feel like there's something about Howland's character that, that has to do with class also is that, you know, that Bellow's characters aren't on the bus usually, right? Um, <laughs> Knows the bus. It's been on the bus a few times, but <laughs> Howland really knows the bus, you know. And I think, I think that's important. And I, I also think that, you know, Hyde Park is sort of rom- romanticized. It is in my mind. Um, I have a lot of wonderful associations with the place. It's incredibly beautiful. Um, I always, I, as a North Sider and as a you know Northern suburban kid, there's a mystique about Hyde Park. There's a certain like even in the fall, there's a certain um, color, a certain yellowness, sepia in, in, in the, in the, that I, that I just think of in my mind when I think of Hyde Park. Um, and so people like me romanticize it because it is so remote. It's far away. University of Chicago is sort of looms large in our imagination. Um, but I think what Howland does, is, you know, kind of, you know, make it an everyday place. And also, you know, the, the, the threat of, um, the murders, the crime that people are often, fearful of in the city of Chicago comes out really um, starkly in this story, especially um, given that, that a, a student was killed in the beginning of the story. Yeah, it's a, it sets the story up in an interesting way. And, you know, she does return to it in discussing her, the way that her life has unfolded. When she talks about the bus, she says, I'd waited 15 minutes for a bus. And when it came, It wasn't an express. The expresses weren't running. So we know she's going to be on this bus for a while. And she says, "Um, I got on the bus and sat down by a window in back and opened up a book on my lap. I always take books with me on buses or trains. I never read them. And she's just observing everything. And she's so conscious of everything around her and connecting everything back to Chicago and then also to reading Native Son and talking about race and talking about um, the ghetto and talking about all of these different spaces and then back to the bus itself. And then she has this this line about um, no one was paying attention to me any more than I was paying attention to the pages of the book lying open on my lap. It was it, it was such such gorgeous moments in that part, the the part of the bus ride. Yeah, yeah. Where it's really just her by herself, not not with the you know all of these these family stories that she's connected to kind of loosely at this point, but that you really get to know where she is in her head in her life, and it it happens again later, of course, but it's just such a a beautiful section of the story. Yeah, can I can I read a little bit? And yes, please. First, I want to apologize to Bello. And Bello was not a rich kid. Um, he certainly <laughs> knew transport, uh, but you know he became he became pretty fancy in ways. Betty Howland, of course, never never did. Um, so, but I shouldn't say that he never took the bus. Uh, but this is uh, uh, um, the Howland character on the bus. I glanced up the aisle. The thing I'd forgotten was how the bus kept turning. 
up 51st Street to Drexel, down Drexel to 47th, up 47th to Martin Luther King Drive, down King to 43rd. Every few blocks, it nosed onward, plunging deeper and deeper into the black ghetto. The coins clicked and rolled in the fare box. And then further down, the bus was getting crowded. Passengers swayed in the aisle, grappled for the hanging straps. A girl was groping her way, arm over arm, along the rails, an unlighted cigarette in her fingers, hot pants, vinyl, stretched boots, turban, her face flat, expressionless, artificially pale. Well, tell me why you wanted to read that section. Well, just because, like you said, the, the, the bus really is so vivid. And, um, you know, she's just on there. It's moving and the names of the streets and the, the ways in which um, it just... Uh, uh, moves along, you know. <laughs> oh, I, do we would we refer today as 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 you know the areas around Hyde Park as as the Black Ghetto? No, I mean that's obviously problematic, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think we can, uh, uh, you know, run by that. Um, but these are areas that to this day are um, you know extremely um, you know uh, unattended to by the city. Let's say that. Well, she's she's an, always an outsider, and it's it's hard for her, she says, to be at events like weddings because no one knows what box to put her in. You know, she had been married. She has two kids. She doesn't see them all the time. She doesn't fit neatly into the family story. And in a weird way, I feel like she really, really fits in that bus. Like she she's she's just a part of that whole situation. You know, yeah. that whole yeah. scene with everybody else in ways that I just don't perceive her in a very coherent way with her family too, too much. Yeah. And, and I think it's partly because of what you talked about with the reading. I love the fact that she always has a book with her, but she won't read because she wants to be attentive to what's going on, you know, <laughs> and, and looking out the window and looking inside the bus and seeing what's going on. And, you know, again, um, I think it's important just to know what she writes here. Uh, um, she actually admonishes herself for thinking too much about race. She says, this has got to stop. I've got to stop reacting to people according to color. This is what has been happening to me, happening to everyone I know, white and black. Race is a prominent fact of life in Chicago, a partition city, walled and wired. You can't help reacting in this way. Try it. And, you know, it reminds me of what Martin Luther King said about um, Chicago, that it was the most segregated city in the country. And um, it's just a reality that, that especially at the time she, uh, Howland's writing about that she's addressing, it's, like, um, it's, it's something that I think is very much a part of this story. But as you say, she's more at home on the bus than she is in the car with her own family and at the wedding of her cousin. Yeah, it's. I mean, the story opens with those details of the murder. She takes an interest in it, and and we see how um, she brings it up again. She talks about sort of the safeguards that people are taking, the after effects in the community of, um, you know, people just being extra safe when something like that happens. But um, I don't know. I feel like the the narrator is is really intent on making clear to us exactly what you just read, that this has got to stop, that this is um, 
this is some something everybody has to put their book down and pay attention to, right? So I wonder how it was received, that section of the story um, at the time. And, you know, we know now that Howland um, went through some very serious things in her life. Um, yes. I mean, there's this idea that, that her suicide attempt occurred in Bello's apartment when he was out of the country. I, I, I heard her son explaining this in a, in a video on YouTube. Right. And he, he was obviously, Bello was obviously a much more successful author, but then she has incredible things happening for her too. Um, yes. And yet she just can't, there's just so many things happening to her that are not very positive. Um, more in the afterwards says that a lack of self-confidence is the general diagnosis for the silence that came after she won a MacArthur Genius Award. And um, I don't know, it's just very sad to me that the that this happened to her that these were the, these were the the sort of uh the details of her life that that she's known for uh, right alongside everything else and that that's what's so been so great about the fact that these books were you know at this point sort of famously re rediscovered um by Bridget Hughes um on a, uh, a, a public space and um you know I think Bridget's whole mission here is to get people to read her work. Um, but, you know, I think with that always comes people's interest in, you know, who, who was the writer behind the words, right? And so I think it's always going to be an issue, especially when, you know, when, when a writer comes as a revelation. And there's so many of these people out there, right? I mean, you know, and we're never going to discover them all, rediscover <laughs> them all, right? And so, you know, in Howland's case, we're lucky. And I feel particularly lucky because I'm, you know, kind of obsessed with where I come from and, and, and love to read about um, Chicago. And so, you know, the fact that I didn't know Howland, um, you know, it was a big gap. And so I'm so glad it was filled. But, you know, she obviously had a rough time as, and I think Howland knew well uh, how a lot of people have a rough time. And that's what's so, um, so powerful about her memoir um, is that she, the memoir isn't about, um, her it's really about the people that she observes on the ward and i think that's um a, a key kind of element when, when when we talk about this particular writer is that even though um she was often writing from a, a, a place of like her own life or using her own life as a point of departure um in w3 and in in in, in this book um in this story blue in chicago the gaze, her, her, her angle is always looking out from that narrator. Um, and that's what's so, um, appeal, uh, you know, so, so, um, intensely appealing to me about this writer. And it's the details that she picks up on. There's so many throughout this story. Uh, you know, I'm just looking just like, I mean, uh, 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 uh Sylvia, Aunt Sylvia, she'd been, the, uh, my mother's younger sister, a helmet of smooth iron hair earrings swinging at her cheeks. She'd been on the Weight Watchers diet and her pretty face was thin 
looked pinched, a little sour. The intelligent report was from my grandmother in parentheses, and she was smoking. She never used to. Holding the cigarette at arm's length, tapping the ashes over the gold tips of her shoes. That's just, that's just, that's just a few lines in this story. <laughs> this story is, 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 is bursting with that kind of observation. So, you know, the story of Howland is, 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 is the writing, period. Period. Yeah. I love that they, there was all this discussion about the color of uh, Rudy's wife's hair. <laughs> and then, like, I don't know how many pages, like 20 pages later, <laughs> they see a, a little red convertible, a Fiat Spider with the top down cut in front of us. The driver had very short, shaggy, windblown yellow hair, and the roots were dark as the center of a daisy. There, Roxanne said, growing somewhat animated for her and pointing the bright tip of her knitting needle. That's the color my hair was supposed to be. That is the most remarkable thing. <laughs> Where? What page you on? I am on page 23 of the blue, blue in Chicago. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's 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 beyond it's beyond great. I must have a different edition because okay. Oh, you have blue in Chicago. You have the actual book. Yes, I I do. Oh, cool. Oh, wow, wow. I'd like to see that. Um, Beautiful. So my copy's different, and it happens towards the end. But this is where they're on shared road, right? And, and, and you know, she's observing their all the fancy houses. We all used to do this. And, you know, it's it's kind of a sport in Chicago. Drive down shared road and look at the look at the houses. Um, and that's a thing, you know, it's the most, the grandest houses, you know, in the, in the Chicagoland, you know, and yet it goes back to, to the, to the dry, the, the Fiat spider cuts in front of them. Oh, you said, and I'm like recounting it because it's so good. You know, it's so good. It's, but it goes with what you said. It's, she's always looking out. I mean, even when she's talking about like these kinds of things that happen to women when they're going to some fancy thing and the comments about your dress and your hair especially when they're coming from someone in your family <laughs> hurts the most then and there's all this pressure but the, the narrator just seems to just be like taking it in stride and is more interested in telling us again as you said looking out and telling us about you know the back of uncle rudy's head and some of these other things um the grandmother you know it's hilarious it's, and, it's it's unbelievably good. You know, when, you, when you go back and you know think a little bit about her biography, it's all the more heartbreaking, right? Because this is this is someone who saw the world. She saw the comedy uh, constantly, and there's a lot of love in this story. Even it's like you know, usually wedding stories go wrong, right? Yeah. This is actually you know this this wedding story. Like they all like you know they say that it's a Catholic wedding, so um, you know. They take communion. Well, the, the the bride takes communion and the groom does it because he's Jewish. But she actually has this moment where she sort of like thinks it's a beautiful thing. What's happening? You know, that's not your ordinary wedding story. Thing <laughs> on its head all the time. I love this part where she says, "Now that nights are warmer, windows open to the darkness, artillery noises from the street. You sense it all the more. The fear is quicker." Besides, everyone knows that violence increases with fair weather. And she goes from there. And then the very next paragraph, she says, you feel stranded after dark. The air is penetrating, particularly in Hyde Park with the ghosts of the old stockyards to the west and to the south, very much alive, a red glow from my windows. 
the inner sanctums of the steel mills. And I thought, that's how, that's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> She's talking about something so grim. And then the very next paragraph, it just sounds beautiful. It, it, it just, you know, I, I try and stay away from the, the arc of a story because I think <laughs> yeah. stories have that kind of, you know, that kind of structure. But, but here, it, it literally starts out, you go north and you come back south. And it's, it's, you know, it really does have this beautiful structure where again, you know, she, she knows what's wrong. She knows what's wrong. She's not celebrating Chicago, you know, as being something it isn't. Um, she acknowledges that, you know, it's a very violent place and um, there's a great deal of, of um, economic stress. You know, these are all, I mean, Rudy is just a beat cop in Chicago. He, he lives in a rent flat and, you know, he's, I mean, people are struggling in, in this story. And, but I, as you say, it's, it, you know, it isn't without um, moments of really stark beauty. And, and I hope we get to the end because yeah. um, it's so great, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so great. Well, I, I want to say that something that, um, that occurs to me as you're saying this is everybody's just, like the narrator in that everybody's just trying to live. People get married, people have children, people get jobs, people stay in jobs that maybe they don't love. People worry about getting older, people get sick, people, you know, and on and on. And there's so much life in this story. It, it's not just the narrator stuck in her apartment there's so much life and and she's sort of bringing that to us and then ultimately yes as you say the ending when we're at rudy's and do, would you talk about it and i hope that you lead into reading that final paragraph for us sure yeah and you know i, I everything you said is so great I, I think that you know it is it's 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 burst you know i've said this before it's really bursting with life and and you can say that about a lot of work, but this really, this really, this is it in spades. Like this is the, this is the example. It's crowded. It's, you know, it, you know, there isn't, there, it's just, there's so much to enjoy in it. It's almost overwhelming. And, and yet she's so good that she brings this story to a landing, you know, at the end where, you know, Rudy, the cop and his wife proxy and they don't have the best relationship and you know nobody's there's no happy marriages in the story except for maybe the one that just occurred but that's probably going to go bad too we know so you know but rudy he's, he's her uncle and he, they seem to have this almost mysterious connection he's a he's a big a big guy and you know has all these war wounds <laughs> and he's sort of um you know he has this there's something attractive to her about her uncle and mysterious. And they seem to come, there's this wonderful note where she basically says, you know, there, that's the connection. It's me and Rudy, but as you said, both outsiders, as far as the family's concerned, but, but because Helen is never general and always specific, there's a scene and, and Rudy for some reason wants her to come into the house and look around, you know, she's been there before and there's nothing to see that's new. 
but he shows them around their house. And he, he actually wants to show her the wallpaper, which I believe has been there three years. But anyway, um, he, he takes her downstairs in the basement. And apparently he's got a lot of light bulbs down there because if you pay your electric bill in person, you get free light bulbs, which is the kind of detail that, you know, I'll just read the line. If you pay your electric bill in person, you get them free. And uh, that's, a, that's a howling detail, <laughs> if there ever was one. And then he offers it. He's like, he's like, what do you, and he's like, uh, you need light bulbs? Here, take some light bulbs. He said, catching me in my sleeve. What do you need? 40, 60s, 100s? They're all here. Pick what you want. And, and then he's like, you need bigger ones? Here's another. Here's 150. Here's 200. <laughs> and she said, I didn't want to take any light bulbs home with me on their bus. But he seemed very anxious for me to take some soft lights, three-way, like pink ones. We got a bag upstairs. I mean, it just goes on, right? And this is like, I mean, you could kill. Like, what does this have to do with anything? It's got nothing to do with anything except there's like almost like this offering. But I love a bag of light bulbs. I just love it. <laughs> and then in the last paragraph, you know, she says what we already started to feel, which is this. I'm just feeling very sad. I think maybe it was the light bulbs, you know? Like, I already felt that. I don't know if you did, but I definitely <laughs> was like, those light bulbs are breaking my heart, you know? And, and they, they, you know, this uncle, it's been a long day, you know, driving. Imagine driving with your grandmother, your mother, your uncle, and your aunt, like two hours in the car. You know, it's, it's not easy. You know, she's observing the, um, the bride's father, who's a plumber. And he's like, she says, it's the parents, the plumbers, the printers, the same class who have to have borne the brunt of things all along. who are still worrying about the future. Um, but he's breaking his back to put on this, this good wedding in a motel in in Highwood, Illinois, because I recognize it because it's near Fort Sheridan. So, um, you know, it's 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 not easy for them to put this this event on. It's expensive, but they're doing it. I love this thing about back to Rudy. She's focused on his neck again at the end. And she does say, I felt closer to him than to anyone I'd seen all day. And she's seen a lot of people that day. Yeah. Yeah. I felt he had been trying to give me some message about his life. I sensed its powerlessness, but it moved me. Rudy and I are both outsiders as far as the family is concerned out of the mainstream, and we are made of the same raw material. Even this unexpected surge of feeling for him was an obstinate, unpredictable force. And it's so connected to this bag of light bulbs, this kind of gesture that he's making to integrate her in that l little scene. It's, it, it is very moving. I, I think there's your ending right there. And I so I hate to say this, but you know, and we somehow insert like they're very different. Like he's a cop. She's a student at the university of Chicago. They're not, they're not kinsmen on, on, you know, on, on paper. Right. <laughs> it, but, but, it, but Howland is, you know, to Howland. Yeah. They're, they're absolutely that. They have the same sensibilities, even though they're so, so different, you know, demographically or whatever. Can you read from I Was Wondering to the end? Um, okay. I was wondering what role such forces must have played in my life. It always feels depleting to make these self-discoveries. Anyway, it makes a long day to go up north and see the family. And by this time, I had realized that I was going to feel awfully tired when I finally got home, washed out, weary. Let down and in blue, 
Yes, very blue. Betty Howland is the author of Blue in Chicago. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner. Peter Orner is the author of the essay collection Still No Word From You. His previous collection of essays is Am I Alone Here? Notes on Living to Read and Reading to Live. He's also the author of two novels and three story collections, including Maggie Brown and others. Peter Orner is the director of creative writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. We had help this week from David Martin Davies. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>